Welcome back to Joker Men Podcast. Joker pod- Men Podcast, yeah. A show about Bob Dylan, or is it well, a podcast po- about Bob Dylan? It's a podcast about Bob Dylan. That's the tagline, because I think a show, it's like, eh, you know, don't flatter yourself. This is just right. a podcast. Right, right, right. Good point. Um, and today we're we're going back to New Morning. Well, we're, we're finishing it off, polishing off the record New Morning with Side B this time. Yes, we are. But we're recording a couple days further down the line from our initial recording session. Um, Rough and Rowdy Ways has been out for, at the time of our recording now, uh, seven days, I, I think. Uh, how's it? How's it been wearing on you, Evan? I, I, we'll we'll have our own separate conversation, of course, but just right. uh, you know, quick quick hit reactions after the first the first week in the post rough and rowdy ways era. I really, uh, I can't speak highly enough of it uh, in terms of the later Dylan oeuvre. I think sure, it's the the consummate expression of like the post nineties Dylan sound. Uh, right, that that Bob Dylan sound that we all love, right. and uh, you know I'm a huge fan of those records with Triplicate and Shadows in the Night and Fallen Angels, and I feel like this record uh, is sort of learned from those. He's taken something from the those records. The sound seems so natural and elegant, as if those records were a kind of boot camp of how to hone his current voice, his current band sound even. Huh. Um, it feels like he's come back to new material, having sort of honed something with, with that experiment or that, that era. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I see, I see what you mean. The, the sound, uh, I think from those records, it's translated seamlessly to the, rough and rowdy ways era um but yeah it's it's uh, it really is great to hear some dylan originals you know uh back in our back in our lives it was too long without some of the lyrics uh and and stories that he's telling he, that only he is capable of telling um and uh, i think he's he's sharper than ever perhaps on rough and rowdy ways with some of these tracks yeah, it's, I think, also the funniest record of his in a long time. Yeah. I was just re-listening to the first, you know, the big three. The Blonde on Blonde, Highway 61 Revisited, Bring It All Back Home. And uh, there is something of that off-the-cuff winking humor on on uh, Rough and Rowdy Ways. Even right. just the fucking title. Right, yeah. The title is... Uh... <laughs> pretty funny um yeah and he's got some he's got some good lines some good jokes in there obviously the, the one that other reviewers are are making sure to note is the uh the line about the size of death's cock uh which is which right. is a great line oh um, you interpret the black rider to be death isn't that do you do you interpret him as as some other sort of figure i think it's slightly ambiguous but um death is obviously a a top contender for whenever you're talking about a black rider. Right. I guess another interpretation I had of that line was maybe that was sort of death 
talking, maybe something death would say to you. Um, but I suppose it's sort of positioned as someone speaking to this black rider. The size of your cock will get you nowhere. Right. Something you might say to death and something death might say it back to you. Yeah, yeah. It it seems to me like it's it's Bob speaking to death. Um you know, he's uh, I forget the exact line, but there's um something about uh you know, he keeps he keeps visit the, the black rider keeps visiting the speaker's wife and uh, the speaker, you know, presumably to Bob. Um, and that if he if he continues coming around, uh, the speaker will forget to be kind at some point in the future. Um, it seems like it would be appropriate for someone of Dylan's advanced age at this point to be reckoning with death in this way. And obviously, uh, such a um, charismatic, creative uh, minx of a person would do it in a sort of humorous kind of fashion, like he's got uh, striking there. Um couple other really, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. There's there's something to be said, I think, for each of the tracks on there. Um, Goodbye, Jimmy Reed is really sticking out to me as one of my uh, yeah. one of my favorites. Um, what do you like about it? It's just got a real nice kind of like, uh, nice kind of, I don't know, uh, rock and roll kind of groove to it. Like, uh, blues, that, like that, flat, that rough and dirty blues. Rough, sound, and, really. rough, rough I mean, and rowdy blues. Rough and rowdy. And it, it's named after uh, Jimmy Reed, who... Uh, I took the time to listen to some Jimmy Reed, and uh, you can uh, you can definitely hear the influence on that song, and frankly, on so much of Dylan's career in mm. in Jimmy Reed's stuff and in and other classic bluesmen. Something that occurred to me was kind of how much what early Dylan is how much it's indebted to just classic straight ahead blues and bluesmen in that fashion in the Jimmy Reed style. Right. The the influence of the blues has become much clearer uh, as he's aged and he has kind of fallen back on these archetypical American songbook kind of styles of recording. It makes sense that he would, he would kind of return to the start, uh, square the circle uh, here at the end of his uh, closer to the end of his his days, who knows how long he'll be with us? Uh, hopefully, for many many years yet. But yeah, I mean, it. Um, I don't know. There, there's there, there. It's just a very it's a very dense record. Um, you know, the last three songs yeah. are seven, nine, and seventeen minutes long. Super dense. Yeah, each track is which yeah. I I'm so happy about. I'm glad that it's like this thick. Uh, Dylan casserole. Um, yes. <laughs> a, a, a Dylan cake. Um, a seven-layer uh, a seven layer bean <laughs> dip of Bob Dylan. Yeah, I think that there's so many instances on this record that have uh, me revisiting, or me sort of rediscovering blues music. I think that it's like maybe the easiest music to take for granted in mm. our day and age is blues, or to be like, Oh, it's uh, just more blues guitar. Like people complain about that a lot, but it's first of all totally foundational right. to where we are now, and second of all, you can still do like amazing things with it. Whether you're just playing straight ahead classic blues very well with the right feeling, or you're pairing it with amazing lyrics, like like someone we know, 
Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think blues in 2020 or in in our general era is often like like you know you, you think of a guy playing the blues and it's just like some middle-aged boomer dad shithead who like you know uh, is is grilling on the weekends and then like rolling out some sweet licks with the boys in the garage uh just digging on the blues and um and so it's got kind of a negative connotation to it or a bad reputation i think based on that kind of mental image which is you know there's a reason that it exists and there's a reason that would have a negative connotation to it but bob is uh you know that he's he's that that's not what he's doing. He's going back to the start. He's he's back at the beginning. Can I do a flight of fancy here? A sort of a metaphor that you something you just said brought up. The blues is like grilling in a way. You know, you can go to a barbecue and um, you can you can be really put off by somebody's burnt, uh, their very shitty grilling, and they've grilled you up a hamburger. They've grilled you up a piece of salmon, for example, and it fucking sucks because they just decimated it on the grill. And you're right to be turned off by this shitty piece of fish that's been ruined by the by the grill ma- master at your friend's dad's friend's house. And then you can conversely, on the other hand, uh, have a fine dish uh, prepared by a, a real grill, uh, grill, grill man, grill, grillist, and uh, your whole perception of that will be changed. So it's really about the execution here, and I just wanted to talk about how people overcook salmon, and uh, I guess that's just been on my mind lately, just people overcook salmon. You just really don't need to put it on the heat for that long. It should be... You know, just opaque. Well said, Evan. That's uh that's an excellent <laughs> that's an excellent <laughs> analogy or metaphor for the blues and Bob Dylan's approach. Um yeah, yeah. Uh I I agree wholeheartedly with your take on on that and on salmon in general. There's a there's a good quote that I'll pull here that I think makes sense and maybe this will allow us to segue back into our discussion of New Morning, which is right. the ostensible reason that we're talking today. Not just grilling. Not just grilling in addition to grilling. Pulling from Chronicles, the Dylan um, memoir, I guess we would call it, which we both have both have taken a look at um, in the past. And I have a hardcover. Mine's just soft. It's shitty. That's a good picture, Bob. But, yeah, um, Bob on the back. Yeah, oh, that's, that picture's on the back on my copy, and it's Bob. Oh, wow. Uh, so on the, on the hardcover, the front cover's on the back, the back cover, front cover's what a world. Anyways, uh, in this in this uh, middle chapter here about New Morning and Chronicles, uh, Bob is is speaking with Archibald McLeish. Uh, McLeish? I don't know. Uh, McLeish. Uh, McLeish. McLeish. Um, um, about um, working on a play together, and, and uh, McLeish is, is telling him that he considers him a serious poet and that his work would be a touchstone for generations after... Uh, and that he was a post-war Iron Age poet, but that he he had seemingly, here's the thing, he had seemingly inherited something metaphysical from a bygone era. Uh, and I think mm. I, I think that's 
that's the 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 level of connection that he's making with the blues that's what he's doing today that's what he's done all throughout his career um and that you know what he's talked about in that that interview a couple weeks ago it's just uh you know he's he's kind of a vessel for this this uh, spirit um this like geist almost uh, that exists throughout time over the ages this book is is great because it's got it's filled first of all it's the only book that dylan has properly written about his career um and his his music life but it's also full of these wonderful descriptions of of what he does there's another excellent line in here that um is dylan talking about what he's done, uh, who he is at his uh, point of view. I was really never any more than what I was. Are you ready for this? Lay it on me. A folk musician who gazed into the gray mist with tear-blinded eyes and made up songs that floated in a luminous haze. Now it all had blown up in my face and was hanging up for me. He's just like, yeah. You know you hate when that happens, when um, when you're gazing into the the, the tear blinded mist and and you write folk songs that sort of glow with a spectral brilliance doesn't that end up getting you in hot water sometimes it, it really does it's a, it's a real caper to to you know get out of it it's but... a pain in the ass is, sure. is what it is yeah and another interesting thing about that chapter of chronicles is really Dylan talking about how this record came about from uh, his life being kind of a big, huge pain in the ass. Something I think I said on a previous episode about him dealing with the the fallout of having been recently very brilliant. <laughs> and now he's sort of a family man, uh, very much a family man, wife and three kids. And he's kind of trying to shake these names, these titles that have been placed on him. One of the ways he decides to do this, to sort of stop being a messiah, is to make new mourning. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I think um, you know, we talked a little bit last time about how new mourning was a, well, at the time it seemed to be received relatively warmly because it came on the heels of self-portrait. Um, but in, in retrospect, you know, in our um, um day and age looking back upon it you know it's it's a it's a fine record but it isn't earth shaking uh by any means and and as far as bob recordings go you know not not one of his absolutely most sterling efforts necessarily but it seems like it, you know it seems like that is kind of the intention here or or was the intention when bob was putting it together there's a there's another quote i don't want to turn this whole episode into just a quoting bob out of chronicles kind of thing but there's another quote here that i think does confirm a lot of what we were talking about um last episode and and really i think throughout the entire uh run of these episodes that we've done so far um where he says the 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 events of the day all the cultural mumbo jumbo were imprisoning my soul nauseating me civil rights and political leaders being gunned down the mounting of the barricades the government crackdowns the student radicals and demonstrators versus the cops and the unions the streets exploding fire of anger boiling the contra communes the lying, noisy voices, the free love, the anti-money system movement, the whole shebang. I was determined to put myself beyond the reach of it all. I was a family man now, didn't want to be in that group portrait. And that speaks exactly to what you were just talking about, Evan, as well as, you know, this concept of, 
you know, by 68, 69, 70, when these records are coming out and be, being recorded, you know, the, the entire world is melting down and this revolutionary, bright kind of protest movement that Dylan is at the forefront of at the beginning of the 60s has, at this point, atrophied and, um, you know, just uh, lost lost the plot. It's become a big, a big mess. I mean, it's still there and all that momentum is now kind of crashing upon itself it doesn't have that exalted optimistic energy anymore shit's just getting weird yeah it's 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 the it's the come down after the trip and it's uh it's bad vibes all around and bob doesn't want to be associated with it and so what does he do he withdraws to woodstock he has kids and he seemingly tries to divorce himself entirely from this um countercultural scene that he was unfairly kind of um pegged to by by the press and uh, the public in general there's a quote where he says i wondered what kind of alchemy could create a perfume that would make a reaction to a person lukewarm indifferent and apathetic there you go i wanted to get some (laughs) my sort of joking thing that i've come back to twice now about this period of dylan's career being the norm core bob dylan period um, I think it holds water, frankly. I think that Dylan doesn't want to be bothered with being any kind of special uh, peacocking figure in the music world or the cultural world. He literally just wants to have dinner with his family. Yeah, there's there's some other line in there. I, I don't have the quote uh, exactly, and I'm not going to bother to pull it out, but he says something like, the, the house with the wife and the kids and the white picket fence in the suburbs, that that was the dream that I wanted, and it, right. it wasn't available to me. He says that was my deepest dream. Deepest dream, yeah. It's a complicated situation because, you know, frankly, at times, you and I are the types of people he's he's talking about in, in these passages Anybody who was waiting for him to come back, because, of course, you and I are right to um, think this man somehow a demigod writing-wise, but he's also very justifiably annoyed by people thinking this. Yeah, I I was going to say it dehumanizes you, uh, or it dehumanizes him. If if you're you're looked up to as this demigod, like you just said, like he just, uh, you know, I, do I believe that Bob really wants to be a guy in an office uh, with a white picket fence, uh, just you know, uh, slugging along like any other schmo in this world? Probably not. Uh, but I do, I do buy him, you know, kind of getting getting tired of the spotlight and wanting to just kind of do his thing on his own and not have every action and word of his. Uh, under a microscope by every single person that surrounds him uh, all throughout his life. And so in that, uh, you know, in that context, then, you know, New Morning starts to make a lot more sense. I guess my, my question would be, though, like, why, if if this is really what he is after, is just some degree of anonymity, why does he, why does he keep record, like, why doesn't he just stop recording music in general, right? Right. I, I, that's the question, I guess. And I think the answer to that is probably that Bob is, uh, as he has done many times throughout his career, is not telling the whole truth here and that really he does enjoy some element of being looked up to as this, uh, he calls himself the Pied Piper in Chronicles at one point. Oh, well, he says he's not a Pied Piper. He says he's more of a cow cow puncher puncher than than a a Pied Piper. (laughs) But, um, But he does say that, you know, by the end of this chapter, he says people 
post New Morning are starting to call him things like uh, the Buddha in European clothes. He says he's <laughs> one of the fav- favorite things, but things that are you know less heavy than Messiah or or like some kind of great leader. People are talking about him in terms now that the image has faded a little bit post these few records, like he is a sort of quixotic folk right. hero. Uh, this, it, it, which he says he can live with, but also, you know, very flattering. People just casually referring to as a genius. Right, yeah. I mean, it uh, it, it, it sounds nice up until a point, uh, certainly. It, it I, I guess it... it seems to be or seems to me like uh, an illustration of the concept of like stan culture that uh, we we live with today has existed all the way back to the very beginning of this shit uh and that the way that people uh, approach uh you know uh, i don't know carly rae jepsen or something on twitter today or or the korean um uh, the k-pop the, stuff the, the k-pop kids those are all just bob dylan fans in in 1967 the k-pop thing is interesting because there's so many K-pop groups, it feels like, and I know so little about K-pop that I feel like when I do catch little snippets of K-pop fandom, or standom, as the case may be, it's just extra clear to me how bizarre the phenomena of of being a fan and idolizing a pop star or music star of any kind. It, it, it's very stark when you see people talking about someone you've literally never heard of. Yeah, yeah. Although it seems to be a little bit more like a sexual thing in, in terms of, like, the pop world. <laughs> it may be. I don't see that many K-pop fans on Twitter going like, um, so-and-so, insert Korean name here, is a genius of the highest order. He's recontextualized modern music with his lyrics. Right. They just say, like, you see him flip his hair. <laughs> then did you fl- see him flip his hair again? You're you're falling into the trap that uh, all the poptimists like to spring, uh, where you're you're crediting the authenticity of the, the white male rock and roller who writes and records and sings all of his own songs as something greater than the <laughs> yeah. the the uh, you know the dancing and and outfit changes and the light shows of the uh, of the the BTSs and yeah, such. Yeah, I guess I'm I guess I'm really um, what's the word um, racist? You're doing. You're doing rockism and you're doing ethnocentrism, frankly. Okay. Yeah, because I like Bob Dylan more than um, than BTS. Yes. How many Bob Dylan fans ever, uh, you know, uh, went on TikTok and sabotaged uh, Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is true, and it's something I have to think about and sort of sit with because. Bob Dylan has never been expressly political. The closest thing Bob Dylan has ever done to politics is, um, well, I guess a few songs. He's got, you know, one or two songs that touch on elements of political controversies in kind of an oblique way, but he never, you know, he never really comes out and says, like, you know... um, He's pro-union because of that song on Infidels. Union Sundown. It's about the unions. <laughs> Is it about but, the unions? But there's, well, there's also a song on that record that seems very clearly to be uh, pro-Israel. So uh, that record, I think when we get to it, 
is going to be really fun to put on a political alignment chart. We can maybe see where it lands. Right. Because every other song is like a sort of contradictory or um, peculiar political stance to just all be thrown together. Maybe maybe we should start charting all of the records on the uh, the authoritarian, libertarian, left-right, uh, four-quadrant axis. I think it'd probably end up exactly in the middle. Um, Infidels? Yeah. Well, no, it's pretty, it's lefty. It's actually, I don't know, you can't even account for, like, spiritual uh, or, like, sort of pseudo-Christian type of points. That song, uh, Sometimes Satan Comes as a Man of Peace. Anyway, we can't be talking about infidels right now. (laughs) There's way too much to cover, but the fact is, none of those types of songs, nothing political at all, at all, appears on New Morning. Right, which brings us, I guess, to the first track that we're supposed to talk about, um, New Morning, off of New Morning, the first track on Side B. I have a sort of complicated relationship with this track because I like it. I just think his vocals on this just seem a little bit like he's not that excited. But I like I like the song. Hmm. I think the vocals sound animated and or at least as animated as anything else in this this record um um has i I mean this is definitely kind of like the uh, most stereotypical or prototypical like good vibes bob kind of song that you're gonna get um which this whole record is kind of revolving around that concept that concept of good vibes (laughs) yeah (laughs) Well, the con- the concept of good vibes, Bob, which is a relatively new concept at this point in, in his uh, recording career, right? Up until like nineteen, I guess, Nashville Skyline is kind of the emergence of good vibes, Bob, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and this is what he's sticking with, I think, really through Planet Waves uh, up until uh, Blood on the Tracks. So yeah, I mean, it, it's it's an enjoyable song. I think it's got a good kind of uh, country, uh, you know, hoot nanny kind of. Uh, yeah, Chugal, exactly, to to use some of the, the particular language that uh, I'm fond of deploying. Um, good organ sound, uh, you know, as we've talked about already. Organ is, is a very present instrument throughout this album, which I dig. I, I think that my issue with it could be as simple as not loving this vocal take. I like everything about the song, but something about the vocal take feels a little bit flat to me like it could have been maybe done one more time i just wish that with a line as simple as on this new morning it could have sounded like a little bit more exultant it as it is it it just feels like a little bit new morning it's a new morning it's a new morning sure Sure. I see. Yeah, uh, kind of paint by numbers almost. Right. That's a. That's a. That's right. It's got some really cool guitar. Like the whole vibe is really strong. Um, it's an interesting, good vibe to have. Um, mm-hmm. If you uh, sort of think about it that way, you know, I I give this song two roosters out of three, crow, crowing at the at the at the moon at the sun. Sure. Right. Uh, so you're you're introducing the uh, the three star rating scale. 
Oh, yeah, I suppose I should talk about the three-star system, which is something I've developed over a period of time, which um, it's just different from the five stars that you might be used to. Um, But if you think about it, if you think about the Michelin, Michelin, the Michelin Man stars, it's actually, there's three for when you are rating a restaurant. So, you know, just think about that and then think about, you know, one star, not bad out of three, but also, you know, not the best. Two stars, pretty good. Three stars, you know, could be anywhere from great to the best. Noted. You can do zero stars if you feel personally attacked. <laughs> but no half stars. No, never. Just one, two, or three, and zero in sparing cases. One, two, or three. The the three-star system is a really interesting way of approaching things because it really does force you to like make some tough decisions. I, I mean, New Morning, uh, certainly, if, if not to get too far off track, but if we were going to give it a star rating, would not deserve a three, which means that it's either going to be yeah. a one or a two. Uh, but there's a pretty big difference between giving it a one star and a two star, and I, you know, I, I think depending on what side of the bed I wake up on each morning, it's some days it's a one and some days it's a two to me. Right, and that's sort of the beauty of the three star system is that it does force you to make those choices, and it, I, I mean, I think it forces you to acknowledge the sort of haphazard, inherently flawed star rating system sure. as a whole the ar- the arbitrary nature of it the most aggressive approach to the to, to rating things via stars it, you, you might be inclined to give everything two stars and yet that's boring yeah it's boring to give everything two stars so some of the fun of the three star system is giving something you you didn't love three stars just because uh it feels true at the moment. It seems like you would, if you're going to subscribe to the three star system, you're going to need to be pretty sparing about your use of the three star rating, right? Like, you know, if if three stars is the maximum that you can possibly award to an album or a bulb album, like, you know, you're going to give it, you're going to give it to another side, or excuse me, you're going to give it to bringing it all back home, you're going to give it to Highway sixty one, yeah. you're going to give it to Blood on the Tracks, you're going to give it to Blonde on Blonde. And yet, there are times when you recognize a record is mediocre, but on its own terms, it it's perfect. Somehow, some things are just perfect, even when they aren't going to be great. I think embracing nuance is sort of the, at the heart of the three-star system. And uh, in this case, I think it's actually, you know... It says something to give this one two stars, where I might give Infidels three stars, perhaps. Uh, I might give Oh Mercy three stars, even though I recognize it's not the best. (laughs) It it, it has um, a consistency of... of, approach of, of I don't know I don't know if I can abide three stars for mercy I gotta say but we'll cross that bridge right we can we can start thinking about the star ratings for all of these records uh, as as they come along um, for sure. but yes two uh, two roosters for new morning the track off of new morning <laughs> um, sign on the window <sighs> not a fan. So I brought up um, Randy Newman last time. Right, yeah, um, I, I see that here. And I've, I've been listening to a lot of Randy Newman's early, early stuff 
68, 70 actually, 12 songs by Randy Newman comes out April 1970. So before this ever came out, um, I just feel like this song is is just kind of a weak rehash of the vibes that are happening on something like I think it's going to rain today and then some of the more upbeat Randy Newman but it to me it just feels like a Randy Newman voice type of song like this doesn't feel like a Bob song to me and maybe it's that it's all piano but I get this feeling like this is just kind of an experiment in contemporary 1970s singer-songwriter songwriting that just doesn't suit Bob. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, 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 this this sound is definitely not something that he would go on to explore or stick with very much in the future, uh, which which makes sense. It does, the, the lyric, I think, does have shades or, or elements of that concept that he was talking about in Chronicles, uh, you know, the picket fence being his deepest dream. Um, you know, it ends, mm. build me a cabin in Utah, marry me a wife, catch rainbow trout, have a bunch of kids who call me, pause, pa, Papa. just pa. pa. Uh, that must be what it's all about. That's, yeah, right. He's, so there is a, Actually, today when I listened to it, I did catch that, and I, I felt a little bit more forgiving toward the song for that reason, having read this bit in Chronicles and feeling like it connects to where he was at the time. But overall, I, I just feel like it's kind of a weird Dylan as Newman, Dylan sings Newman detour. Yeah. Worth mentioning, so um, Archibald McLeish and Dylan as... I've uh, talked about in this chapter of Chronicles, McLeish had sort of contracted Dylan to come by and try to work with him on turning out some songs for this play or a musical that he was working on, a theater production. Right. And um, that ended up actually influencing at least some of what's on New Morning. Some songs were originally written for this play uh, as kind of a, a jumping off point. For instance, Father of Night, the closer, is a, a title that Archibald sort of threw out there. Um, it's unclear to me if this song in particular was, but it feels a little bit like it may have been fodder from that project, which never really materialized. Yeah. Yeah, it seems it seems like the kind of thing that you would it would be like the second song that you hear in a play or something, just kind of establishing, you know, uh, the the happy idyllic nature of of everything that's going on, and then uh, you know before before things before the first act really gets going, uh, there's just not mm-hmm. a whole lot not a whole lot there, um, and certainly not one of the songs that I return to with any great regularity on this record. One more weekend is the next song after Sun on the Window, which. Is a, a nice return in some ways to something a little bit more classic, a uh, classic Dylan sound. It honestly sounds a little bit like pledging my time or, or some of those classic bluesy Dylan vibes come through here, but without any of uh, leaps and bounds lyrically. It's just a sexy tune. We're, right. We're back. Horny Dylan is sort of taking the stage again right he's he's reappearing um just a, as a as a guest uh on on the new morning record we were talking about goodbye jimmy reed earlier 
and I think One More Weekend is, well, I, I can't say it fits into that kind of uh, vibe because this came out a uh, half century earlier, uh, but, you know, starts off with that, that tasty little blues lick at the very yeah. beginning, and then it just proceeds to, uh, you know, proceeds to be a nice kind of, nice nice little rock and roll uh, tune. Musically, it's very similar to that sort of approach. Yeah, but there's there there clearly isn't the same level of you know artistry in the lyric on on this on this song compared to Goodbye Jimmy. Unless you consider um, fucking your wife an art form, because well, that's what this song's about. It's about it's about laying pipe in marital bliss. Yeah, it's about it's about having a good time with your wife before you got to go back and change diapers in Woodstock, New York. Um, just taking some time off from everything, enjoying a weekend. He deserves it, you know. And isn't that just kind of a huge part of life? Is is weekends with your sweetheart? Let's hear it for weekends with the sweetheart. It, there's there's something romantic about it. Come come. Coming and going like a rabbit in the wood. I'm just happy to see you. Yeah, looking so good. Right. <laughs> this, seeing these words on page or on, <laughs> just on a screen and not like hearing him sing, they, they're they're losing a bit of their luster just reading <laughs> them off a page. Oh well, that's because you're not doing any sort of voice, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's part of the fun is uh, taking taking uh, you know the the words of uh, the great poet laureate Bob Dylan out of context and just presenting them as a, a deadpan kind yeah. of statement, the way that you would order a coffee. You know, it, it's I think it's important that we read some of the lyrics uh, pretty often, just so because so much of this is about the uh, the words. You know, we'll fly the night away. Hang out the whole next day. Things will be okay. These are the thoughts of having a nice weekend. Truly. With with your wife. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not like I don't say this to my girlfriend. I say, um, you know, we'll hang out the whole next day. No, <laughs> there's there's nothing a, a girlfriend or wife likes to hear more than we'll hang out the whole next day. It's... It's a proposition to go and drive up to Santa Barbara or whatever. For the t- why don't we go to Ventura today? Well, do you want to? Yeah, that's yeah, want, Why don't we drive up to? Um, do you want to go to Amoeba Music? Do you want to go to? Um, <laughs> do you want to go? Maybe we could go to Griffith Park and then go see a movie. That sounds great. These are the thoughts and sort of ideas of this song. Uh, but yeah, I mean, beyond uh, I think beyond the music that's going on here, and the uh, the little reappearance of Horny Bob, not a whole lot to dig into. No. But the next song, the next song. Yes, the man and me. The man and me. Mm, this is great song. Yeah, this is one I think that um, you know coming coming back to this record. Um, here and and uh listening to it again heavily but for the first time in several years uh this is this is the song that i think i'm i'm most vibing with these days this is kind of my big discovery really or rediscovery as it were uh initially you know it had been kind of the the catchier poppy singles uh if not for you day of the locust and the title track that caught my ear um you know upon my first go with this record but 
this song and to a lesser extent I think the two that will follow also just the, the last couple songs on this record are where it, it starts to pick up a little bit of momentum for me I agree um, but yeah I feel the, the, same the man in me I think is just is very good vibes I dig it it's actually like I think an elevated statement on what we have with one more weekend where we find Bob really with this whole record um where he's living this very domestic life. I think uh, the beautiful thing about The Man in Me is that it elevates and puts into a grander perspective the everyday, the the mundane, the being a BF or husband or partner. Everything goes right on this record. It just sounds great. The groove is there. The backing uh, oohs and ahs. I mean, it's just pitch perfect. And when I was driving in my car and it came on yesterday, I exclaimed out loud. I said, hell yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah, the, the the notes that I have taken from myself here, uh, not particularly extensive, but one one of the words that I wrote down for this, that doesn't appear, I think, for any of the other songs, uh, that I took notes on, or well, I took notes on all of them, but I think this is the only song in which I have taken this specific note, which is the word passionate. Uh, it's a yeah. passionate vocal. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's kind of what sets it apart from a lot of uh, the rest of the stuff that's going on on New Morning is it, it really really does feel like there's that that kind of howling, whirling dervish, uh, real, you know, bleeding heart Bob uh, is is there within this song? It's so cool to hear him apply that vigor and that intensity to lyrics that are so simple, but they're not they're not generic though. Right. It's really grounded earth music about doing your best, being a man. Yeah. He just owns it, this vibe perfectly. Absolutely. It's a, it's a masterpiece, a minor miracle. And with, you know, on that note, I think it's it's sort of a flashback to what was going on on Nashville Skyline. Uh, I, I think the lyric would not be out of place on that record. Obviously, the sound and the vibe is is very different from what he was doing there. Um, but you could very easily imagine country crooner Echo Reaver Bob uh, singing this lyric and it fitting in right next to Lay Lady Lay, or, or tonight, uh, I'll, be tonight sing- I'll be singing yeah. here with you or something. It's it's got that. You're exactly right. It's a, it's a very simple and down down to earth kind of lyric that he that he has here but it, there's uh there's this this deeper uh greater wisdom contained within it right and it's a wisdom i don't even know if, how intentional it was like everything i'm reading about the period surrounding this record kind of suggests that it was all just sort of thrown together um some of it good some of it less good uh all of it inoffensive at least pretty much but right. I think with this song, it, it it's uh, maybe accidentally just one of Bob Dylan's best songs. And I think it kind of sounds like nothing else before or after. Uh, yeah, like I think that's exactly why we're why it's interesting to talk about all this stuff the the way that we are. Right. Like uh, you, you said, it was kind of accidentally thrown together or the whole record was. And, you know, there, there wasn't a whole lot of thought or effort or, or time. Uh, put into it necessarily, and yet, uh, even even under those circumstances, he is still able to come out with a song like this, the man with the man and me, um, and that's that's what's so interesting about it is like even 
even, you know, C-minus level Bob, even one star out of three level Bob, um, is is capable of delivering a, a stunner like this just without even trying necessarily. One star out of three, still pretty good. One third? Sure, sure. That's not bad. Depending on how you look at it. It's just uh, it it's 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 really nice to find to just kind of stumble upon this diamond in the rough. Not to say that th- this record is rough by any means, certainly compared to other uh, recording artists and out there. The, but as far as the Bob catalog goes, there's some other rougher Dylan records. We've yet to hit the '80s, but there's a period where the diamonds shine all the brighter for being <laughs> let's put it that way politely <laughs> that's that's fair but we're still at this point i mean this is 1970 we're still like i don't think he really starts to tank until like empire burlesque really uh which is 85 i think right look let's not even um, think about tomorrow let's, yeah we should probably we should probably not open that can of worms right now that's that's later and if there's one thing i've learned lately going through all of this it's that it's seeming more and more like he actually just didn't care that much what he was going to do next. He was just going to do what he was going to do next. And it really does just happen. Things just pop up, and he just goes with the flow. He's just rolling along. Sometimes that ends up with a song like uh, The Man in Me. Great song. A three-star classic. Absolutely. It's interesting that number 11 is called three angels because um both of them are prime numbers is that true i just decided that is that true though i think that is true yeah holy shit damn (laughs) three angels i think this song is pretty cool actually like i think that this song is kind of in my notes i wrote that it's sort of dylan's homage to the beat uh, poets. If that wasn't made clear that it had been floating around in the ether with If Dogs Run Free, I feel like Three Angels kind of made me feel that If Dogs Run Free, first of all, wasn't that much of a joke. Maybe just not as serious, but something of this beat poet style is, is running through this record. And I think it's executed better on number 11, Three Angels, which, for my money, just seems like Dylan's version of a Kerouac vibe. Uh, that's interesting. I, um, I, I see what, you're, what, what you mean, I guess, hearing you now. But yeah, as we talked about last time, I think, like, uh, if, do- if Dogs Run Free is not um, the most, uh, you know... Um, compelling track necessarily to re-listen to at this point and and actually uh buzzing through chronicles earlier also i saw that he mentioned in there at one point like you know he just found a couple backing vocal people in columbia or in the recording studio that he was in and like had one of them improvise some scatting and he just laid down the vocal in one track in one take and that was it that's that there was one recording done done dogs run free truly was free that's how they went um, which I think lends some credence to the idea that you know maybe 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 it wasn't uh, necessarily like a satire or a takedown of the beats, but it wasn't seriously 
um, put together by any means. But I do think Three Angels does have some actual consideration to it. And the the lyric, just looking at it on BobDylan.com, noted resource, BobDylan.com. Right. Um, Great resource. It's interesting because it's all it's all just arranged as one single stanza, almost as if it's like a short story or something, as opposed to all the other songs on this record. And I think songs, most of the songs that I've seen in general here are arranged into distinct individual stanzas, three, four, five per song. This is just one one straight flow. Um, and it, it, it does have this this more, you know, kind of storytelling kind of vibe to it um, about this, this, uh, this driver of the U-Haul truck uh, going on 10th Avenue. Um, or going by 10th Avenue, at least. A truck with no wheels. Uh, one U-Haul trailer, a truck with no wheels. Oh, yeah, good point, right? Um, the bakery truck. Oh, okay, so there's right, the so U-Haul truck. Two tr- a tale of two trucks, as, uh, if you Interesting. will. Interesting. Um, Three angels and two trucks. You know, classic math. This song, I think, is really successful, and it's great that it follows... Um, I mean, I think these last three tracks are my favorites, probably. It's great that it follows the man and me... Because you've got sort of a an emphasis on this combination or juxtaposition of the spiritual and the mundane um, happening here, where this is a narrative, uh, to my mind, of the mundane, prosaic, modern world, uh, cityscape, but it's juxtaposed with this ethereal image of these angels. Uh, playing a horn and sort of trying to uh, communicate with with mortal people. And uh, it ends with um, the angels play on their horns all day. The whole earth in pr- procession seems to pass by. But does anyone hear the music they play? Does anyone even try? Which I think is uh, really poignant and... Um, a nice way to end this song, but uh, it's a nice sentiment overall. Yeah, yeah. There's there's certainly a deeper sense of feeling going on here, I think, than than we've gotten on a lot of New Morning up until this point. Um, I was wondering, do do you think that this is like um, it, sort of like a, a like a dry run or a prototype for the Christian records that are going to going to follow. This is this is kind of the first instance of like Christian imagery appearing in a, in a serious kind of fashion, at least um, in his discography up until this point. To to the best of my knowledge, at least. To to that point, I I would actually take this opportunity to just go to the next track because I think they flow right into each other, and in my opinion, Father of Night which is the final track, is absolutely a song about God. It would be a stretch for me to think of a way that it isn't. Father of Night, this was a song that was suggested as a title by Archibald McLeish, so I have to extrapolate that its origins were from that project for his play, which was called Scratch, is that right? Yes, Scratch. Scratch. Ran for two days, three days, and then was done. Yeah, ran for two two days. But Father of Night, we got Father of Night, Father of Day, Father who taketh the darkness away, Father who teacheth the birds to fly. I'll stop right there. I mean, you're hearing the teacheth and the taketh. This is old-time religion. Yeah, uh, interestingly, I think, and you might be able to speak to this a little better than I can due to your uh, Semitic heritage. According to our friends on Wikipedia, 
this is Bob's interpretation of the Jewish prayer Amidah, A-M-I-D-A-H. Amidah, I'm un- yes. Amidah, I'm unfamiliar. Uh, that is a Jewish prayer, yeah. Um, you're putting me a little bit on the Jewish spot here because I usually <laughs> can't remember um, what the Jewish prayer, what the Amidah is exactly, but I think it's something you definitely have to recite at your bar mitzvah. Um, basically, in Judaism... There's one God, one, so he encompasses everything. Um, and he's definitely a man. That's clear. So we've got father of grain, father of wheat, father of cold and father of heat, father of air and father of trees, who dwells in our hearts and our memories, father of minutes, father of days, father of whom we most solemnly praise. And that's how this song ends. Worth noting, father of loneliness and pain, even. So, if you got one God, you got one problem, which is that God has to be good and bad. God has to be this and that. He's got to contain everything in one. Some people, they might not want one God to have to be good and also bad. This is um, problematic. Uh, on a fundamental level, perhaps. But the Judaism approach is to say, um, we like this. We It's convenient to have it all be one God. We actually like that it's just one thing that we can have. In, and, and we don't have to worry about splitting it up and who takes which ones in their car and who's carrying what. It's all one thing. That's that's a very authentic sounding Jewish accent <laughs> that you that you adopted there. So you could look at this as a Jewish song, but I think uh, if we're talking just generally, this is a song. I mean, e- even secular wise, uh, it's hard to read this as anything but a song about God. Am I wrong? No, I mean that that's certainly the vibe that it has to me. Um, uh, you know, especially as someone who isn't particularly well versed in the uh, in in the, the the arts of the Torah and such, um, but that seemed interesting to me reading that on Wikipedia. Which who knows if that's actually legitimate at all? Um, but you know, Bob has kind of, uh, to my mind at least, uh, run away from his Jewish heritage uh, quite a bit throughout his career. Uh, well, I'll stop you right there, Ian, because actually during this period was the first time. That Bob went to Israel, the Holy Land. I guess that's a good point, isn't it? Yeah. In searching for a way out of being famous for being cool, Bob decided, well, I'll just emphasize that I'm very Jewish and people might leave me alone. <laughs> Apparently kind of worked for him on the front pages after he visited the Wailing slash Western Wall with his yarmulke on. Everyone said, Bob Dylan, Zionist. And if you want to appear uncool to the public at large, saying you're a Zionist is one of the best ways to do that. Zionists um, are not cool unless they are uh, epic girl bosses like Gal Gadot, um, who who star in cool uh, superhero (laughs) movies, in which case they are cool. Right. Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is very cool. Wonder Woman, the character is not Jewish. Wonder Woman is 
that uh, yes, uh, canonically Wonder Woman is uh, not Jewish. Um, that that's important to note. Um, In fact, the character of Wonder Woman really hates Jews, and she's <laughs> she she actually. I don't know. Wonder Woman, if you think about it, it seems like whatever island she's from is like someplace a Nazi might have blown to in hiding after World War Two. Right. And she's actually the daughter of like she's like Goebbels granddaughter or something. And um, yeah, I could I could see she it. She just grows up to be Wonder Woman. Yeah, she's she uh, goes out on a on a campaign of ethnic cleansing throughout the world. A lasso that makes the golden lasso that makes you tell the truth. Well, it is a gold. Just, it is a golden lasso, and we know who likes gold. An Aryan, Aryans. Oh, oh, Jews. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's sort of an interesting thing to think about. <laughs> Jews love gold, <laughs> and 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 Nazis love gold hair. So you know, where do you? How do you thread that? Needle? I I think I think what that means is maybe maybe there's more that unites us than divides us. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and I think that's what this song's about, frankly. Um, you know, we've got a father of night, father of day, father of this, father of that. You can't deny he's your dad. At the, at the end of the day, he is your dad. That's a good point. It's, it's an interesting note to end the album on, I would say. Very atmospheric. Uh, it's only a minute and a half. It's apparently the shortest uh, song ever recorded for a Dylan, Dylan studio record. It means it's a hardcore track. Yeah, it's, it's a... It's a it's a progenitor for Minor Threat. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's a it's a neat little curio. It's a Paul Simon sized song. Ugh, let's not let's not get into that again. Look, I, I can uh, I can we can talk about Paul Simon for a second. I also don't think I listened to some Paul Simon since you mentioned that you don't love him, and you know I think you you might be onto something that it's it's not. Um, Oh, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not out here like you know, hating on Paul Simon by any means. I think I, it, it's more just sort of like what he stands for and represents, and that like you know, kind of like faux universalist approach. You know, especially the Graceland period with fucking Ladysmith, Black Mombazo, and like I, I don't know, it just rubs me the wrong way for some reason. I don't know. It, it like a what that he's like. Uh, well, what if? You know, we all love African music, but what if I was the person who was who was bringing it to you? Wouldn't you like it then? When I think of Paul Simon, I really think of like a guy driving around in his BMW 5 Series in 1984, uh, listening to Paul Simon on his cassette deck on his way to the polling place to vote for Ronald Reagan. Um, that's maybe unfair to Paul well, Simon, did he vote but that's for just Reagan? the general. Is Paul Simon a Republican? I don't know. I, I just I just feel like people who like Paul Simon would be Republicans. Well, Paul Simon, that seems wrong to me. I don't think Republicans give a shit about Paul Simon. But I think Paul Simon probably gives a shit about Paul Simon more than anyone in the world. My main point that I'll bring it home is that all of this, everything we've talked about, Wonder Woman, Paul Simon, these all fall under the umbrella of being children of God, the father of night, um, father of day. Father who taketh my, uh, to, ooh, oh shit, I fucked up. Father, father who taketh the darkness well, whatever away. Whatever you say is going to be right. Cause it's all him, baby. 
this is God we're talking about. So yep. you got, that's you a good got, point. You can say good, he does good things, he does bad things, all part of the plan. And um, one of the things that God is responsible for is um, actually the next record um, and the film that it is the soundtrack to. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. A movie by Sam Peckinpah. We're going to have to watch it, and I hope that you watch it too before the next episode comes out because it's a huge part of, of us going to enjoying that is going to be watching the film and this is the first time that's going to be truly multimedia uh, a multimedia dylan experience because dylan's even in that movie as an actor he is i think just a sort of a brief cameo if, if memory serves but he does he does make an appearance on the silver screen i guess that that does it for new morning right uh at the end of the day uh what would you say out of three stars I feel like this album is a solid two out of three stars for me. Um, Any album that has the man in me on it has to get bumped up a little. And we're not doing half stars here, so come on. The man in me. The man in me is great. I think that's a a true three-bagger, three-star out of three. Um, But for me, you know, if, if we're... If we are just looking at Bob's discography, okay, that's you know, another question. Okay, I think you I'm gonna, what? I think I'm gonna have to give it a one. I, I take it back. You're, you're so right. I this uh, gimlet that we we've both been drinking a gimlet actually, um, of a, after a fashion, and it's gone to my head a little bit. Um, it's absolutely one star. What was, what was I thinking? The one star goes to the man in me and um, father of night and yeah, you know, I can't, I can't front on this. This is, this is a one star. And uh, I guess we should think about what the other albums we've covered before, what they, what we give them. John Wesley Harding off the cuff. What would you give it? Uh, Two. I also give it a straight up to Nashville Skyline. That's a three star for you, right? That yeah, it's certainly a three star for me, no question about it. I have to give it a one. Wow. But it's just know that it's a one <laughs> that I really like. I don't I don't I don't know if we're gonna be able to recover from this. Two stars. Alright, gets two. Um and then uh self portrait. I wanna that's I want to say it's two, but again, in the context of the Bob discography, I don't know if I can give it a, if if I can give it a two. This is the tough thing about the three stars. For instance, Self Portrait. I think I have to give a begrudging three, just because there's nothing like it, nothing else like it. Wow. So you, I, I, I do see what you're saying there, but by by you know, if we take that logic a little step further, you're giving Self Portrait the same grade. <laughs> That you're giving Highway 61 or Blonde on Blonde or Blood on the Tracks. Yeah, but this is, you know, Father of Night, Father of Day. You have to embrace nuance. We're talking about a holistic view of the world where you have to understand that there is one God and there always will be. This has been Joe Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Joker man.